0: can you hear me back there? Can everybody hear me? Is this on? Okay. All right, we continue our study in the book of Romans, so if you have your Bible or electronic device, turn to Romans chapter 7. And, uh, of course, we're doing ten weeks. Ten, So this is number seven out of ten. We got three more weeks after this. We'll be finished just before Thanksgiving. And uh, today in chapter seven, Paul identifies. Last week we looked at uh, God's view of who we are. We're, we're in Christ. We're new and different people. We're dead. The old guy's gone. Uh, today Paul identifies the problem Now, living the Christian life, and he said, you know, originally when I first started to live the Christian life, I was confident that I could accomplish it, that I could keep the law. I knew I was able, I had strong willpower, but in fact, he found that he's completely lost, very much like Chevy Chase in this movie, clip. Chapter 7 in Romans, the problem identified. We now know from chapter 6 who we should be, how we should live. But now chapter 7, Paul's going to go, not so fast. There's a problem here that you have to overcome before you live the Christian life. And when I was uh, studying this, I remembered way back when I was in Dallas Seminary, eons ago, I had to write a major paper on materialism because that's basically where my ministry was going to be after I got out, (laughs) in North Dallas. And so they said, well, what religion is North Dallas? And I said, well, it's kind of materialism. So they said, okay, write a paper on that. So I I had to have all these sources. You know, they want you to have this big bibliography, and I was having trouble finding it. So the professor said... You know what you ought to do is do interviews. Do you 5 to 7 interviews with people, you know, who are experts in materialism <laughs> and then report the findings and and that'll be enough for, for the to complete your bibliography. So sure enough I racked my brain and looked all around and of course having been in the real estate business in in Dallas I knew a lot of uh, very materialistic people. And so uh, I went out and chose five of them that uh, were well known for you know, their greed and their materialism and everything. Uh, all of them had a bazillion, gazillion dollars. Uh, they all had incredible amount of stuff, every kind of toy imaginable. And they're all known far and wide for their you know, having a lot of money and spending it and the greed and the whole deal, being focused on all the stuff in the world. Uh, so, I said, these are the guys, and so I called them, and they, I didn't tell them what I was doing, by the way. <laughs> I said, I'd just like to interview for you for a paper I'm writing at Dallas Seminary, and they said, yeah, sure. So, I went and met with these guys, and, had, and I had a bunch of questions that I asked them during the interview, like, uh, uh, are you, do you consider yourself a Christian? Uh, what are your priorities, Uh, what do you think of materialism or the philosophy of materialism uh, and on and on like this and here's what I found that they all had in common amazing discovery by the way one thing or actually three things that was true in all of them, every single one of them number one, all said they were Christians, they grew up as Christians and their parents took them to church and blah 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 so they said oh yeah I'm a Christian secondly, they asked them about what their priorities were. They all said the same thing. My priorities are first God, second family, and third business. Never mind that they all worked about 12 or 14 hours a day. <laughs> you had absolutely no spiritual life whatsoever. And thirdly, they all said they did not believe in materialism and, and several of them even said, in fact, I I detest materialistic people. So what did I discover? What was the bottom line of this paper I wrote? Uh, My discovery is that the human race, human nature, has this incredible dilemma. And that is the very thing they hate, they are. Think about that. The very thing they claim to hate they are. There is a war within them that they're losing. And they don't really know themselves until God holds up a mirror or somebody holds up a mirror and it's revealed. Like if you went through their real life and how much time they spent, you know, and you could disprove what they said their priorities were, blah, blah, blah. Were. So, I mean, basically, they don't know themselves at all and they want to be this person, but they're, in fact, just the opposite. This is the way the human race has. So the very thing they most despise and long to avoid, they are. I couldn't believe it. I mean, it was really, to me, uh, an amazing thing to, to, to find. That's what Romans 7 is about. That's what Romans 7 is about. Paul finds that true in himself. He said, I grew up as a Pharisee thinking I was keeping the law and I was certain that I was good and righteous and holy and kept all the laws. But once they were held up in front of me and I saw myself like looking in a mirror having broken all of them, I realized the very thing that I didn't want to be, I was. The very laws I wanted to keep I couldn't, right? And so really the way people keep all these laws is that they just don't know anything about them. They don't pay attention to them. They suppress the knowledge of them and so they're able to live their lives and not even think about it. And so they're not at all who they actually want to be. I'll give you another great example. Uh, Years ago, about 12 years ago, I was on a I was invited to go on a golf trip to a real nice place, and uh, I went. And there, was about, there was 11 other guys. There was 12 of us, and they were all golfers and everything. And we played golf that day, and we went out uh, to dinner. And one of these guys uh, said to me during the dinner, he said, you're not one of those saved by grace, one of those free grace people, are you? And i went, well, yeah, I kind of am. And he says, "Well, I'm a Christian, but I walk the walk." <laughs> Guys, he said, he said, "Guys like you just talk the talk. I walk the walk." And I said, "Well, what does that mean? I mean, what?" I said, "Give me an example of that." And he says, "Well, I never lie. I hate liars." I said, "Really? You never lie?" <laughs> no. I hate liars. And so it was getting kind of uncomfortable, and so the people there that were with us changed the subject. Let's talk about golf for a while, you know. And so in the golf conversation, this guy says, yeah, you know, this course isn't as hard as I thought. I hit the par 5 and 2, and I said, hold on. uh, I was with you. I was in your foursome. You were 20 yards short and in the rough. Oh, well, I was close. I could have hit it, but I just hit it, you know, a little straighter. Then about 10 minutes later, he says, well, I played really well. They were talking again about their golf game. He says, I'm playing actually pretty good considering I hadn't played in six months. And somebody says, I played with you about two weeks ago. <laughs> oh, I, well, except for that. And then about 15 minutes later, he, somebody said, I'm surprised you're here. Because, you know, this is your wife's birthday. I I can't believe she's, you know, allowing you to come on this trip when it's her birthday. And this guy says, well, it was her idea. I told her that I was willing to stay home. And she said, oh, no, I want you to go and have a good time and everything. And this guy says, hold on. I talked to your wife a couple of days ago. She was hot. And with that, I said, okay, you said you never lie. In the last 30 minutes, we've caught you in three lies. (laughs) And so what happened with this guy? Obviously, he proved the same point. Here's a guy who wants to be a good Christian, thinks he is, thinks he walks the walk, But in the fact, he had to face the fact that in reality, the very thing he despised, claimed to despise in others, and he avoids in himself, he says, he finds out that he is. Normally he just ignores that he tells all those lies. But now that I'm holding this mirror up, he realizes, or he should have realized, (laughs) The very thing he claims to despise, he is. That's the frustrating part of trying to live the Christian life on your own. My willpower, I can do it. And so that's what Paul's talking about here in chapter 7. The man who works hard, the person, the man or woman who works hard, who thinks they have everything together, their life together, uh, they've got a strong will, You know, and they think they're keeping the law. But from God's view, he sees something different. He sees somebody trying to do something supernatural in his own flesh. Here he is, his his materialistic fleshly body is trying to do what's actually supernatural, spiritual. And of course, God knows, in Paul's writing in chapter 7, that he needs more than just his flesh. He needs, we need the spirit of God to enable us, to help us actually carry out the requirements of the law, or actually be the righteous person and live the Christian life that we all long to live. So uh, God's view, our, our position he sees in chapter 6, you're dead to sin. You're a new person in Christ. That's your position in God's view. And therefore, it's only natural, it's only logical that you now live like you're in Christ, that you, never, you live like you are a Christian. He's your perfect example. And so we want to do that in chapter 6. And it's all logical that we do it. And then skipping forward in chapter 8, he's going to give you how you actually accomplish that. we'll see that next week. Walking in the Spirit, the New Testament calls it. I mean, God has indwelled the Christians with the Spirit of God, and we need that Spirit to lead us and guide us and teach us, and we need to depend on Him. It's beyond us, but in God's power we can accomplish it. But in between 6 and 8, who we ought to be and how to get there. Paul puts the problem. There's a problem, there's an issue to keep you from doing, keep you from being what you want to do and who you want to be. And that's what chapter 7 is about. What's the problem here? What prevents us from living the Christian life? And believe me, and and you all know, it's really what he's going to talk about in chapter 7 is the rule, not the exception. Most Christians fall into the category of chapter 7. And Paul wants his audience, and hopefully us, to move into the category of chapter 8. Again, next week. We'll give you a preview, but uh, we'll really look into that next week. So, uh, again, in chapter 6, he says, present yourselves as someone alive to God, who lives the life. Uh, Now in chapter 7, First, you've got to identify the problems. First, you've got to identify the barrier between what you want to do and actually doing it. And that's what chapter 7 is about that problem. We need to first identify that problem before we can overcome it. So, look at chapter 7. He continues the thought of chapter 6 that we remember what he repeated? In every verse practically in chapter 6, you're dead to sin. The old person who did that naturally, like that guy telling all those lies, that guy's dead. He's gone. He's behind you. You're now a new person in Christ. And so he says, or do you not know, Verse, chapter uh, 7, verse 1, do you not know, brethren, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. And what he's going to do here, he's going to use, he's basically saying, you know, now you're new in the sense that you're like married or joined to Christ. So he's going to use marriage, you know, the human institution of marriage as an example. He's going to use that institution as an analogy of what he's trying to tell them. Just like when you're married and you're legally bound together until one person dies and then you're free to remarry, right? So in the way, same way, the analogy goes, that you used to be bound to this old way but now you're dead to that so you're free to join yourself with Christ and live the new Christian life. So he uses the analogy in verse 1 through 3. Or don't you know, that the law is jurisdiction of her person as long as he lives. For the married woman, the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. She's free now. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. She'll be breaking the law. But if her husband dies, she is free now. To remarry, free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. So, the same uh, analogy of, you know, you were this person, but now you're free to be this person because you're dead to that life. Now you're alive to the new one, just like legally uh, the legal institution of marriage. Therefore, verse 4 Therefore, my brethren, you also were. Made to die to the law. In other words, when you mean die to the law, separated from it, you're no longer going to be judged by God by the law, by breaking the law. Now he judges you by grace. All right? So now you're not going to be judged by the law. You're going to be judged by God's grace. In other words, Jesus has atoned for us breaking the law. So now in Christ we're free. So he says you were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, through his atoning work on the cross based on what he did. In order that you might be joined to another, to Christ, who was raised from the dead that we might bear fruit for God. So we were separated from the old life and we joined the new life in Christ so that we can now live a spiritual life in Christ and bear fruit... For God, do good works. For while we were in the flesh, before Christ, it was just, you know, our physical body was demanding what we do, running our life. The sinful passions, which were aroused by the law. So the law is going to be seen as doing two things here. Number one, it reveals sin. The law reveals sin. So it's like, again, like I said before, looking in a mirror. You don't really know what you look like until you look in a mirror, right? And then it reveals something. Same thing with the law. When you compare yourself to the Ten Commandments, and if you do it it honestly like Paul's getting ready to do, we'll talk about that in a couple of verses, if you do that honestly, then you see that you fall short of God's standard. So he says, uh, the law, our passions not only uh, were revealed by the law, but now it says they were even, they even aroused the law. In other words, the law even provokes us to sin, which is pretty wild when you think about it. Uh, is, is the law bad? Is there something wrong with it? No. But there's something wrong in me. It's the physical materialistic side of me, the flesh, he calls it, that has incredible desires. You know, greed and hunger, thirst of all kinds, right? Sexual, the whole deal, actually gets aroused by the law. When it says, law says, you can't do this, it becomes, for a rebellious person, it becomes, remember when you were teenagers? That's a long time ago. But you can remember... And it was like we were crazy because the first time we had this intense desire, you know, to rebel against all authority. You know, and we had seen our parents drink alcohol and smoke and do all the talk about all these things, and we wanted to experience it. They've been preventing us from having all this fun and all this pleasure. We've got to break away and be free and do it all, you know. So most teenagers are like that. It's because we're rebellious by nature that way. And so there's something in us, you know, and something says you can't do this. We go, oh, yeah? Right? Uh, I was reading a story about people talking about arousing or provoking, breaking the law. Uh, Corpus Christi used to have a hotel that overlooked the ocean. And the people, when they built it, they said, well, we're going to have to uh, make a rule that people can't fish You know, so we don't want them opening their windows and fishing, you know, out of the hotel. And so they put up signs. In fact, nobody'd ever even thought of doing that (laughs) until they put up the signs and said, "No fishing from the hotel room." Everybody thought there must be a lot of fish out there. (laughs) So they go out there, and there's people, all kinds of people, hanging out of the windows, you know, with their fishing pole. It actually provokes breaking the law. Remember Prohibition in 1919? There has never been so many thirsty people (laughs) after they outlawed alcohol. It's like suddenly everybody's thirsty. Right? Because if they won't want us to do it, there must be something pleasurable and awesome about it. I was was reading about Prohibition and uh, it said that there was a, a product that was a bestseller, and it was a block of, of uh, grape juice concentrate and they put on the marketing on the label it said do not drop in a tub of water and let ferment or it will turn into wine <laughs> it was it, they sold out immediately <laughs> whatever you do don't do this So what Paul's going to say is, you know, in verse 7 he's going to say, you know, uh, I used to think I kept the Ten Commandments and I was pretty sure I kept the first nine. But then I got to that tenth one. Remember what the tenth commandment is? Thou shalt not covet. What does covet mean? Desire. Thou shalt not desire stuff that's not yours or that you don't have or can have. Wait a minute, let me think about this for a minute. How do you legislate? How do you legislate desires, thoughts, feelings? How do, you, how do you do that? Why is that so true? Because we can't, you can't do that with human beings. Why? Because our thoughts and desires are so messed up. Only God can legislate that because he knows what's in your heart. He knows what's in your brain. He knows the way you think and what you fantasize about, right? So God can legislate that. We can't legislate that. If we made that law, how could you ever enforce it? We couldn't. But Paul saw that and said, now wait a minute. Thou shalt not covet? How am I going to do that? And he realized that he couldn't because he constantly, like all of us, constantly thought of stuff he wanted, stuff he wanted to do, wanted to be, right? And it drove him nuts. And he realized that because he broke number 10, that really set him up to break all the other nine, those desires that he had for all this stuff and to do all these things. God was actually judging him and so just like Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, remember he said you say uh, you've never committed murder but you get so angry at people that you could feel like you could kill them in God's eyes you've committed murder. You say you've never committed adultery but in your heart and in your mind your desires are for doing that and you fantasize about that you have committed adultery in your heart. Now that blows our mind. A lot of people just dismiss that. But this is basically what Paul's saying. That's the 10th commandment. If you can't control your desires and your thought life and your feelings then you break all the other commandments. That makes it pretty hard. And that's what Paul's saying. Look at verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Is there something wrong with the law? May it never be. The law is good. It's righteous and holy. You can't blame the law. I mean, think about it. You go and you get a test. You go do an MRI test. And the MRI test reveals that you have something wrong, a disease. Do you blame it on the machine? That MRI machine, that that thing's evil. No. All it did was reveal the truth. So you can't blame the law. You've got to blame somebody else, something else. So is there something wrong with the law? No. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin. It actually revealed sin to me, except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting, what that really was, if the law had not said, you shall not covet, the tenth commandment. But sin, what happened when I realized that what the law of that tenth commandment was saying sin taking opportunity through the commandment produced in me coveting of every kind. What he's saying is I suddenly realized (laughs) I was breaking this law a whole bunch of different ways. I was breaking the other nine commandments and it was revealed to me. Suddenly I, I was overwhelmed. With the amount of sin that I was involved in. Verse 9, and I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. He basically said, I thought I was alive. I thought I was doing great. But when I compared myself to the law, like again, like looking in a mirror, I saw all the blemishes, the wrinkles. All the issues. I saw the truth. Verse 10 And this commandment, which was to result in life, God gave it for a good reason. It's for our benefit, it's good for us. All 10 laws are. But this commandment, which was to result in life, instead proved to result in death for me. Because he was such a failure. And keeping it. He was separated. When you see death here obviously he doesn't physically die. He's not talking about that. He's talking about spiritually dead. He's talking about separation from God resulted. Verse 11 For sin taking opportunity through the commandment deceive me and through it, killed me. So not only did sin reveal itself but through the law, but it also provoked the rebelliousness that's in me. and actually provoked me to sin even more. What's he describing? That struggle within us. He's describing the problem that we have and living up to God's standards. That's what he's describing. I thought I could keep it. What does he mean by deceived? I used to think I could do it. Now (laughs) I was just fooling myself. That proud self-effort, that willpower I thought I had, that was just deception. I was deceiving myself. I wasn't accomplishing anything. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Well, since... That's not the problem. What are we left with? What is the problem? So the summary statement in verse 13. Therefore, since he's figured all this out, therefore, did that which is good, which is the law, did it become a cause for death for me? Did it, is that what killed me? May it never be? No. Rather, it was the sin that's in the members, my physical fleshly body with all its desires. That's what separated me from God. Rather it was sin in order that it might be shown, revealed to be sin by effecting my death through that which is good. So the law which is good was given to me as God's perfect holy standard and by breaking it it was shown to me that there's something wrong with me. Something lacking. Incomplete. I need help. Is what he's saying. So he's identified the problem. That's what we need to do. I mean, it takes a humble person to do this, right? To come to the conclusion that Paul's coming to. And think about what an outstanding, awesome guy Paul was. He's the guy that converted, that planted all those churches in Asia Minor and Greece and did all this stuff. He wrote half of the New Testament. This is the guy that's saying this about himself post-conversion. So he was saved by Christ, and then he decided, well, since Christ is my Savior and I live for him, I'm going to do it all. I'm going to keep that law, and I'm going to live for him. And he's describing here in chapter 7 the failure and the problem identified, okay? So the sin in me, and it was proven, shown to be sin, by affecting my death through or my separation from God through that which is good. And through the commandment, sin might become or revealed utterly sinful the war within. So it's not going to allow you to be like that guy who said he never lied. It's going to be like the conversation where everybody's going, now that you know that's out there that I never lied, then everybody at the table going to go, well, that's a lie. Well, there, there's another one. You know, everybody's watching you now. You've created a mirror for yourself. Verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh sold into bondage to sin. So there's two different things here. The law is good and righteous and holy, it's spiritual, but my flesh, this physical body with all its desires, is not. I need help spiritually. And of course, the answer again next week is. God's spirit. God's going to provide that help. He's going to give us the missing ingredient. His spirit, the Holy Spirit. So the struggle within us, verse 14, is is identified. And what what are the reasons? Uh, We cannot curb it alone. We can't overcome this problem alone. We need help. So in, in verse 15 through uh, 25, l- let me give you the structure. It's, it's basically three laments. It sounds like a riddle, okay? So I'm going to try to break it down for you so you can put it together. Because uh, if you read it all at the same time, you're going to go, now what? <laughs> so if, if you're reading it or you read it before you came here, you're, you're probably baffled, now what did he just say? What, what this is is three laments. You know what a lament is. It's woe is me. I, you know, I can't believe this is happening. I have this problem. And, and so here's the, the, the structure of the lament. Like in verse 14 through 17, if you look at it, what does he do? There's three parts there. One is a statement of the problem. So he's going to state the problem. What does he say? I'm sold into bondage. My flesh is weak. Secondly, He's going to give a description of the conflict, which is basically, I want to do what's right. I know what's right. I want to do it. But I can't. I find the members of my body doing something else. So if you're alive during the prohibition, you'd say, I know I shouldn't drink. That's against the law. But man, I sure am thirsty. I think I just, you know, can handle it one night. I'll quit drinking, but, you know, not tonight. So that's the statement of the problem. And then thirdly, he gives why the problem exists. Because our sin, our our fleshly body, has a sin nature to it. So look at verse 14 through 17. We already read 14. 15, verse 15, he says, For that which I'm doing... Notice also that it's present tense. You know, the the church, there's a a part of the church, a a denomination, a wing of the church that wants to say, I'm just going to hang on to chapter 6. I'm not going to 7. I'm going to stay in 6. Chapter 6 says, I'm dead to sin. I'm not going to sin anymore, and that's it. So once you're a Christian, you don't sin. I've had this conversation with a lot of Very religious people, by the way. So I know this is true. And they'll quote you all the verses in in chapter 6. And they never get to 7. They don't understand 7. And if you bring it up to them, you know what they say? Oh, he's talking about his struggle before he was saved. And I say, really? Wait a minute. Let's look at the facts. First of all, he's talking in the present tense. Second of all, this is Paul writing to the church way after his own conversion, you know, 20 years after his own conversion. Writing in present tense. And he's showing a a real distress here over his inability, and he's calling out to God. You can see it in verse 24. He calls out to God. An unbeliever wouldn't do that. He would never be convicted of his sin. He would never call out to God for help. Thirdly, uh, again, Paul is convicted by the law. Would an unsaved person in rebellion against the law be convicted that he was? No. He'd be like the guy who said he never lied. And fourthly, all the major theologians like Augustine, Luther, Calvin, the Puritan, all those Puritan preachers, Jonathan Edwards, all those guys said, so the majority opinion said that Paul was talking in the present tense about his Christian experience. Okay? So, present tense. That, verse 15. That which I am doing presently, I do not understand for I'm not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. So, in my mind, he says, my mind and my emotions and my will is to keep the law and not do this stuff, but my physical body wants to do it really bad. (laughs) There's a battle between what I know I should do, and what I actually do. So if I do the very thing I do not wish to do, I agree with the law, confessing that it's good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which indwells in me. So the I he's talking about is his mind. My mind doesn't want to do it, but I find myself physically actually doing it. Another great example would be, uh, since we talked about lying, You know, you say, you know, I'm not going to lie anymore. You know, I've told enough lies in my life. I'm going to be straight from now on. I'm I'm in Christ. I'm going to be just as honest as Jesus. You get cornered. There's a lot at stake. You tell the lie, and you immediately rationalize it in your own mind. Well, I'll give all that money to the church. (laughs) I'm telling this lie to get that money, and I'm going to give it to the church, so it's okay. Yeah, right. So it's not my mind. It's not what I want to do. But I keep doing it. It's driving me nuts. So then the the next couplet, verse 18 through 20, says the same thing in a little bit different way. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for the wishing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. Again, what you want to do versus what you actually do. For the good that I wish I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not wish. Now the next, the third couplet. But if I am doing the very thing I do not wish, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find in this principle that evil is present in me, one who wishes to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. So mentally, I believe in the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not covet. But physically, I keep coveting. I see a different law in the members of my body. Waging war against the law of my mind. My mind wants one thing and my body does another. And making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members, my physical body. So now that he's said it three different times you know in those nine verses hopefully you, you see the repetition for emphasis this is a problem and it's driving him crazy and so he can't take it anymore so what does he yell in verse 24 wretched man Lord help me this is driving me nuts wretched man that I am Who will set me free from the body of this death? Again, separation, separating myself from who I want to be. How will I ever get this done? Who will help me? And he gives you the answer in verse 25, which he's going to elaborate on in chapter 8, which we will get into next week. And I beg you to do your lessons for next week because it's, it's the Christian life. It's the way of life. It's all important. So take the questions and do chapter 8. If you do, no other ones. Do this one. <laughs> so verse 25, verse 25, the answer to his dilemma. He calls out, "Wretched man, who will save me? And verse 25, he gives the answer. Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh the law of sin. That's the problem, and that's what God is going to help me overcome. That's his conclusion. There was a TV show on years ago that kind of illustrates exactly what he's saying. Anybody ever watched the Wonder Years about 20 years ago? <laughs> they had this kid named Kevin, and it was amazingly like, you know, my life in junior high, you know, and in his algebra class, eighth grade algebra class, Kevin, I mean, he'd been good at math, but when you got to algebra, you know, you, Joe walks two miles and Sam walks three miles the other direction, and Joe walks twice as fast as Sam, and you know, how long will it take Joe to catch up? And you go, now what? <laughs> and so Kevin thought he was this great math student because he'd always gotten A's in math, and now he got to algebra, and he couldn't do it. He, he made D on three straight papers. So he goes to his teacher and, and expresses his frustration I know I'm a good math student, I know I can do this, but I keep making D's. It's a real dilemma, professor. And the professor says something really profound. He says, kid, you're too proud to get help, and you're too dumb to pass. (laughs) (laughs) So finally, the kid came to his senses and said, yeah, I'm not that smart. I do need help. Where can I get a tutor? I can't do it alone. And so the professor says, now you're ready to learn. And that's where we are after chapter 7. We used to try to do it ourselves, but God's saying the same thing. You know, you're too proud to get help. You're too proud to turn to me. And you don't have the ethical ability to do it. So here's my help. Chapter 8, the Spirit of God. Next week, don't miss it. (laughs) Let me close in prayer. Lord, help us. We have the same dilemma that Paul had. If Paul couldn't do it, I know that I certainly can't. And Lord, we thank you and praise you that out of your love, you saved us by grace. And Lord, you're going to help us live by grace. We appropriated that grace by faith. And Lord, you're going to help us live, we're going to appropriate the Christian life by faith as well. And so Lord, I pray that you would be with us as we study your word in the next week and come to uh, the conclusion about turning our life over to you and living, walking in that spirit that you've given us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.